But what we're seeing um, on these communities and just in multifamily in, gen in, in general is just an incredible demand. And we were talking on the phone prepping for this call and we were talking about lease trade out and renewal trade out and just how off the charts that has been. Um, we're seeing in, in Dallas today, I just pulled the stats before I came here, our lease trade out is I think 15% on our own portfolio and our renewal trade out is somewhere around 12 to 13%. And Phoenix, Dallas is very familiar with, I mean, their number starts with a two. It's 20%, I think, on new leases and about 23% on renewal trade out. And so we're just coming out of it based on scarcity and just you know, being able to push rents and build value at our, at our communities, which is, I, I mean, I've been doing this a while. I've not necessarily seen a, a cycle this robust in, in quite a long time. Hello and welcome to another edition of TrekCast, the official podcast of the Real Estate Council from deep in the heart of Dallas, Texas. I'm Bill San Antonio. Thank you for joining us. Today we'll be replaying our Rental Housing Summit, which was held March 30th as part of our Market Matters event series. The panel discussion was moderated by DCEO editor Christine Perez and featured Gables Residential CEO Sue Ansel, Graystar U.S. Real Estate Services leader Tony Eubanks, and Invitation Homes CEO Dallas Tanner. They talked about the single-family and multifamily rental explosion happening here in DFW as the region added more new residents than any part of the country in the last year, and even more are projected to call the area home in the coming months. Before we get started, I'd like to recognize and thank our event sponsors, Grant Thornton and DCEO, for their support of Market Matters. Be sure to subscribe to TrackCast on your favorite podcast app. It's the best way to ensure you get the latest event replays, roundtable discussions, and exclusive interviews right to your mobile device. Follow us on social media as well for the latest from around the Real Estate Council. We've put links to each of our accounts in the episode description. Now, Here's our Rental Housing Summit with Christine Perez, Sue Ansel, Tony Eubanks, and Dallas Tanner right here on TrackCast. Good morning. I love it that real estate people like to talk, except when you're trying to get people's attention. Good morning. I'm Kim Butler with Hall Group and this year's Chairman of the Real Estate Council. Thank you for getting up early and joining us for our Market Matters Breakfast. Uh, this is our first one of the year. I'm anxious to hear what our speakers have to say this morning about the rental housing explosion, and uh, boy, are we seeing it. First and foremost, we want to thank our sponsors, Grant Thornton and DCEO. We've had an exciting start to the year in programs and opportunities for you to engage as members of TREC. At TREC, we are all about leadership development, public policy, and community investment. As our city grows, the importance of our impact grows by engaging you in the things that matter to our city. Trek is working to transform neighborhoods through Trek community investors. One important thing to remember is that our community investment activities are largely funded through Fight Night. We are closing our sponsorship sales for Fight Night this year, and you do not want to miss out. Fight Night will be a sellout. Uh, please make sure that you commit as a sponsor or a table host to be at the event this year, September 29th at the Hilton. I look forward to seeing you there. Did you know that in 2021, more people moved to the Dallas-Fort Worth area than any other region in the country? We here in North Texas continue to be blessed with opportunities that are unlike what many of us have seen in our careers. However, one of the challenges that accompanies these opportunities is what we do with all these residents. To help answer this question, we've assembled an all-star panel of national industry leaders. They will share their insights into the explosion of the multifamily and the single-family rental markets. There's much to talk about, but we only have an hour. So without further ado, I'd like to introduce DCEO's editor, one of the most knowledgeable people in commercial real estate, and I feel one of the most genuinely good people in our business, my friend, Christine Perez. Christine, we want to thank you for your continued support of Trek.
Thank you, Kim. Uh, DCO is proud to be a longtime partner of the Real Estate Council, which does so much for our region. Um, and thank you all for joining us this morning to talk about one of the hottest sectors in real estate. Please join me in welcoming to the stage our three amazing panelists this morning. Sue Ansel, the CEO of Gables Residential. Tony Eubanks, who is the US real estate lender for Graystar. And Dallas Tanner, who is CEO of Invitation Homes. Just gonna go ahead and put these on because I'm gonna need them. <laughs> um, all right. Well, uh, before we get started, uh, just a very quick word about acronyms you'll probably hear this morning. Uh, they were a little new new to me, but they're probably going to be talked about today. SFR Single Family Rentals and BTR Build to Rent. All right, you guys. Thank you so much uh, for joining us. Um, let's start with just getting a general background from each of you on your companies and your roles within them. And Sue, let's start with you. Good morning, thanks for the invitation to be here. It's always great to be with the Real Estate Council, especially in person, it's been way too long, so thanks for the invitation. I'm Sue Ansel, uh, CEO of Gables Residential. We are a multifamily builder, owner, manager, operator. We have about 30,000 units uh, under management around the smile uh, parts of the United States. So we develop in Boston, uh, DC, Atlanta, Southeast Florida, Houston, Austin, Dallas, Denver, and Southern California, and are moving into new markets. Salt Lake City is a new market for us, and Seattle is a new market for us. And I've been with the company a really long time. <laughs> All right, Tony. And I'm Tony Eubanks, I'm with Graystar. Um, I'm an executive director there, so I oversee our owned book of business, which includes SFR B2R, um, conventional student living and active adult, and I cover, I cover the U.S. territory. And so at Graystar, we have about 2,500 U.S. communities, and we own about 20% of those. We're also expanding throughout Europe currently, um, and basically I just, like I said, I oversee our owned book of business in those four sectors. Wow. All right, Dallas? I'm Dallas Tanner, uh, CEO of Invitation Homes. We are a single-family rental uh, REIT, publicly traded New York Stock Exchange. We have about a um, little over 85,000 single-family homes across 16 markets. Uh, we started the company in 2012, uh, put our headquarters here in Dallas so that we could be centrally located. Um, much like Sue, we, we cover what we call kind of the smile markets. We have a little bit of some West Coast exposure in California and Washington, but primarily kind of Sunbelt, Southwest, Southeast uh, markets, and um, great to be here. Thanks for having me. You guys are a pioneer in the industry for sure. All right, so let's just get right into the nitty gritty and talk about demand. Um, can you uh, please share what trends and factors you believe are driving demand for multifamily homes and single family rentals, both from a consumer and an investor standpoint? And Tony, let's go ahead and start with you. Yeah, sure. Uh, so I would start that off by kind of giving you some history of a deal we built here at basically um, Forest and Inwood in Dallas. There was a, there was a, we tore down a prior deal there that was mostly comprised of townhomes and single family homes. Um, and it had been there owned by the Daniels family for give or take 40 years. And so we repurposed that, or I guess, you know, tore that down and rebuilt there. And we really took notes from what had been successful for them. And that, again, was the townhome kind of concept, but also these single-family homes. So that project that we put back in place there has 12 single-family homes. And really, what we found is why those are so appealing. It was, it was a, very, a select group of people that maybe grew up in the area and weren't yet ready to buy a home. It was also people come there because they're renovating their home. Um, and then we have a lot of empty nesters that come there that just want to be very close to their children. Um, and because their children have homes there and raising, and raising children there themselves. And then it was a huge pocket. I mean, every private school in Dallas is pretty much, or I will say most, um, is pretty much right around that, that, you know, that acreage. So um, that was kind of how we dipped our toe into it to begin with, but we took a lot of lessons learned from that project and, and have applied those. 
But those three or four buckets, I think, is really what appeals to people. And I will say, too, just the ease of, you know, having a yard if you have a pet and not having a neighbor um, above you. It's been, that pro the project has done very well for us. And so, again, we kind of took all the lessons learned and have applied those on future projects going forward. Excellent. What about you, Sue? So big picture, I would say what's driving demand is the fact that uh, we are undersupplied in housing across the United States, depending on who, who, whose metrics you look at. We're between four or five million housing units short across the United States. And it's really been driven by the fact that since the global financial crisis in 2008, <clears throat> very few single family homes have been built much less than typical. Uh, there's been multi-family built, but, but we're, we are short. And um, so that is the biggest thing that's driving demand across the United States. Then really happening prior to the pandemic, but accelerated through the pandemic, is a, a shift in population. And they, the population is moving to all the markets that we're talking about, the small states. And it, I would say they're moving for lifestyle reasons, but those lifestyle reasons including uh, include moving from expensive states, so a lot of people moving out of New York and California because it's so expensive to live there. Some are moving the work from home or work from anywhere phenomena. People are moving to a place where they would prefer to live, and that might be a warmer climate. Or as Tony said, people are moving to be closer to their children. Mm -hmm. And so that's really driving the demand side and the fact that they're so we're so short on supply is what's creating these phenomenal economic conditions uh, for us around the United States. With respect to capital, capital is fungible. They see great returns. Uh, you know, the single family home business, just incredible returns, yeah. multifamily solid returns. And so capital is coming because it, it's also a case of some of the places where capital used to go to in the real estate market, sort of the office and retail is down. Mm -hmm. So we're getting the benefit of that. Industrial has been on fire, but it's capital is fungible, so it will move where the returns are. Where there's money to be made. <laughs> there's money to be made. All right, Dallas, uh, what about you and your thoughts on demand? Well, I mean, I think what you're seeing happen to, I agree with everything that they both said, but I think single family rental has been here for 200 years, mm -hmm. right? It's always been an industry without um, adult supervision. <laughs> so, to, so to say, I mean, honestly, as you think about it, and I think, you know, Graystar is a great example of this. As you started to see the apartment industry professionalized in the 70s and 80s, you had these great businesses built uh, in providing professional services, both as an operator and maybe as an investor, which I know they do both very well. I think Gables is in the same regard. I think with single family, it's always been a mom and pop industry. Um, it's always been a part of somebody's retirement plan or you've had a second home or, or whatever it was. but that, that, that piece of, of, of how the housing uh, process or continuum has always been there. But I think what happened was is you had the housing crisis, which was the opposite of what Sue said in 2007 and eight, where we had an oversupply issue and, and there was hot money and people were developing and building like crazy. And there was all this growth and this energy around growth and all these suburbs, primarily in the Southwest and Southeast. So you had an overbuilding issue. What happened was is capital like, you know, ours, for example, Blackstone, got smart and, and figured out, well, hold on here. You, there's actually an opportunity to get enough scale where you could drive a real business. I think what, what companies like ours have done is kind of highlighted the fact that this industry already has existed, but that you can add a lot more to it uh, in terms of professional services, customer experience, and things like that. And so, so I think what, what, what became a moment in time because of an oversupply issue has given people confidence like, oh my gosh, you know, to Sue's point, this is a real business. There's great returns here. And if you get enough scale, you can actually have margins that are as good as multifamily, maybe, maybe even better because the duration stays a little bit longer. So I think it's funny because I think the moral of the story here is a lot of times there's opportunity right in front of us that's been here forever. People just haven't figured out how to do it in a way that makes it different than how it's already existed. And so I think that's what you're seeing with SFR. The, the, the money is fungible, that people are trying to come into a space because the return profile is there, but it's been there forever. Just nobody had figured out how to do it the right way. Yeah. Well, I uh, neglected to say that Sue is my landlord. Um, the instant that my uh, youngest son graduated from Capella High School, I sold my home and uh, moved downtown and uh, live in Gables Republic Tower. And I love uh, the freedom 
of renting and uh, walking to work. So, uh, you know, I think that's a lifestyle kind of situation is probably coming into play as well. Our very, uh, be our very best resident, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. I never have loud parties. <laughs> All right, um, okay, so uh, single family rental has been coming on especially strong with many new players coming into the game. So Dallas, you're like a pioneer now uh, that you've been doing this for 10 years. Can you talk about the industry's evolution, things that you've seen? And then uh, Sue and Tony, I'm gonna talk with you both about the impact on the multifamily and the single family residential market and maybe uh, your strategies uh, in terms of development. So you want to talk about the evolution of it? Yeah, I'd just say, I mean, 10 years later, when we started our business in 2012, you know, there were basically zero systems that supported single-family rental and scale. Uh, I think, you know, we took a, a Salesforce, for example, as a CRM to help us think through a property life cycle and basically took an off-the-shelf version of, of a basic Salesforce software. And then our teams over a couple of years have kind of fine-tuned and plugged holes and figured out how to make that a bit more systematic. Today we have BI tools, we have access to, um, I would say third party companies that provide services that didn't exist 10 years ago. Um, I still think, I mean, candidly, I still think it's the first inning. We're, we're, we're professional in what we do, but a lot of the systems and services have a lot of runway to get better. Um, and I think there's a lot of entrepreneurial opportunities for people if they wanna to start to figure out how to be a bolt on strategy for single family rental companies. And I think you're starting to see some of that come into play. Um, but I think there's also headwinds. I also think it, we have a, a, a louder voice today. We, we cross over, I, I think in multifamily, you know, traditionally it's been ac accepted that this is a for rent product typically. Sometimes you see a multifamily developer convert something into condo and then sell it. You know, single family rental is, is, is a little bit touchy because the homes go in and out of the fee simple story as well. People having home ownership, but it's always been there. It's just, there's, there's kind of an understanding that needs to take place. Um, but the industry's on really good footing. I think the innovation and the technology that's in the business 10 years later today is great, but not enough. And I think it'll continue to evolve and get better and better. Excellent. Tony, what are you seeing like in terms of impact on the multifamily market, this whole uh, single family rental trend and how is it affecting you know, your strategies and how maybe you may be developer? your development or investment decisions. Well, it gives us another option, right? Um, but like Dallas and Sue said, we're pr primarily with this product, we're in the Sun Belt. You need space, right? Mm -hmm. you, it'd be a little bit tougher in California to develop something like this just because you'd have to do an assemblage or something like that probably to get enough acreage. But as far as um, demand, it's just, again, um, it's just this renter that doesn't, they, they want to have personal space. They, they like I said, they have a dog or they have a family or whatever, and they just don't want people living side by side or people on top of them. But what we're seeing um, on these communities and just in multifamily in, gen in general is just an incredible demand. And we were talking on the phone prepping for this call and we were talking about lease trade out and renewal trade out and just how off the charts that has been. Um, we're seeing in, in Dallas today, I just pulled the stats before I came here, our lease trade out is I think 15% on our own portfolio and our renewal trade out is somewhere around 12 to 13%. And Phoenix, Dallas is very familiar with, I mean, their number starts with a two. It's 20%, I think, on new leases and about 23% on renewal trade out. And so we're just coming out of it based on scarcity and just you know, being able to push rents and build value at our, at our communities, which is, I, I mean, I've been doing this a while. I've not necessarily seen a, a cycle this robust in, in quite a long time. And so, and then occupancies are pretty well sustained at 95, 96, sometimes all the way up to 98. Uh, the project I was referencing earlier, Alon Inwood, they're today, they're 98% occupied and the rents on their single family, the 12 I mentioned, is like 330 a square foot with a 2200 square foot average. And then on the townhomes that are about, I don't know, 1200 square feet, they're getting two and a quarter. And so just the dynamics of being able to you know, push rent and, and offer a product really that suits so many different kinds of lifestyles. It's been fun um, to be in the space for sure. And I agree with what Alice said. It's not new, um, but it is, we are infusing more technology. We are infusing you know, a professional kind of degree of management on these buildings. 
Um, but it's, it's not new. This project we tore down had been sitting there for 40 years, and mm -hmm. we basically built a replica of it, you know, just because it worked so well and it served that community very well. So I think it's interesting. The data that I've seen is very few renters who live in multifamily, traditional multifamily renters, move into single-family renters. I think it's, I think I find it very complimentary mm -hmm. and to the point you've made. It's that they've both been available for some time. I think it's 10 or 15% of a, of a renter who lives in a multifamily home will be a single-family renter. Where, what the single-family rental market is attracting, to your points, are families, dogs, they're looking for school districts, they're looking for uh, community. What's been great about the fact that it, the single-family rental market has gotten professionalized, you talked about the technology, everybody is benefiting from that. There are so many things that we can learn and apply across our portfolio, especially going through uh, the pandemic and you know people not wanting to have the face-to-face -face contact or being worried about um, meeting people without masks. Is, is the single-family rental market figured out out of necessity when you have homes scattered, how do you effectively lease and have the payroll caught? You can't have a leasing agent sitting at every single family home, so there's a lot of technology that has been developed in the, in the professionalization of the single family rental market that is benefiting every all of us. But I, I find the two products extraordinarily complementary. And again, uh, everybody is benefiting now from this, just this huge shortage of housing across the United States, so I, I think Look at everybody's trying to go to school on what you guys are doing on single family rental dispersed as well as build the rent. I think there might be opportunities to combine, if you, if you can find the parcel of land, that yeah. you can combine the two, but finding huge tracts of land uh, in markets that can accommodate that is difficult. So, have you, um, have you adjusted your amenity mix at all? I mean, between, you know, maybe whether it's driven by this trend or others? So, um, interestingly enough, again, work from home, our common areas now are, um, we work offices for our residents, right? Mm -hmm. They don't, if you're working from home, more often residents don't want to stay in their apartment 24-7, so we find our common areas are, used, are being used very differently. Mm -hmm. As we're developing new communities going forward, we're certainly building in desks, workspaces for people to work from home if they want. One of the challenges that we learned during COVID is if you have two people working from home and everybody's on a Zoom call, you can hear both people on the call at the same time, and so trying to find a space where you can do that. So we're thinking, we always thought about sound attenuation between units, but not necessarily within units. So we're thinking differently yeah. about that yeah. going forward um, and, and just, uh, creating flexibility in the amenity space. Still, you know, fitness centers are important, swimming pools are important, all of that hasn't changed, but tweaking around the edges. We have not seen, I thought we would see uh, a push from people going from one bedrooms to two bedrooms or into larger um, floor plans within that. And I don't know, Tony, you may have seen that. We have not seen much of that, interestingly enough. Wait, I have a couple comments on that. So on a, a typical conventional product, I agree with everything Sue said. We did a massive um, resident survey too, and just the data was fascinating because it wasn't they they didn't want state of the art a state of the art fitness center or pool. They wanted very practical things. They wanted a laundry room, not just a laundry closet. They wanted sound attenuation. They wanted outdoor space off their unit um, so they wouldn't have to maybe go downstairs. So it was, it was fascinating because it was very much back to kind of just the basics. Yeah. And that, but then on single family, we're doing that completely different. We're, we're programming that with the technology like Smart Rent, for example, for access. Um, one person in the office and one person out. Everything else is contracted out. And so you can't necessarily come to one of those communities and get a guided tour. It's a self-guided tour. Mm -hmm. And so really looking to fine tune that underwriting, it feel, it, it's gonna feel a lot like maybe a master plan community felt when you were buying your first home, right? You'd go into the model, there might be a person there, there might not, but then, and then also pushing a lot of the services back to the, the resident homeowner, right? So, hey, you're gonna pay part of the landscaping and uh, it's kind of small work orders like, I don't know, a 
light bulb change or just a minor plumbing issue, that will fall back to you. So we're doing that through the lease a little bit too. So we are looking to run those completely different. But to the amenity question there, just green space, maybe a pool, maybe some micro conference rooms, because as Sue said, that's kind of been one of those things that people want, and maybe like a play park. And that's it, because the, the amenities are in the home. They'll have private yard for the pets, they'll have a laundry room, um, obviously two-car garage, won't have to worry much about sound attenuation on those because there's no one directly around them. So two completely different plays depending mm -hmm. on which product type it is. Interesting. Phyllis, are you seeing any like common demands, what people are looking for out of their homes? Yeah, a little different spin. I agree with everything that's been said. I think our customer falls into kind of three categories based on our survey. So about a third are out of necessity, uh, meaning you know they can't afford a home, but they need the size of a home or they need the yard component, the garage, whatever. The other two thirds kind of are almost cut into two different buckets. One's preferentials, meaning that they absolutely could own, but they choose to lease for a variety of reasons. And then there's the other third's about a, a bucket we call transitional. And, and there's some sort of a life event that's going on that's causing them um, to, to, you know, relocation, new job, marriage, divorce, whatever it is that's causing them to, like, take a pause and kind of figure out their bearings. Um, I think, you know, the common denominator in all of this is that people want ease of use. Um, I think they want flexibility. They also want um, things that you experience in multifamily, like 24-hour customer service, uh, an ability to have somebody maybe fix something in your home while you're gone, which is always a pain as a homeowner because you don't leave a set of keys as a homeowner, right, for, for a vendor if something's going on. So I think that is, is, is um, an opportunity, uh, both in the category and with, you know, kind of anchoring in on what people want. We've tried to do a really good job of creating models around maintenance and service where, you know, the customer service model really is the maintenance tech that's in and out of our home. Once you lease a home, to Sue's point, you know, 99 out of, no, I mean not 99, 90 out of 100 times, you're probably going into the home and looking at the home without any of our um, representatives with you. And you've gone through our smart home app or smart home technology, showed the home to your family by yourself, no pressure of a salesperson there, but made that decision very quickly. After that, it's the service model that I think keeps people in the home. So if we can, if we can offer uh, a really good product that, you know, this is a real estate room, so you know that like if we have great product in a crummy area, it's not going to lease. Mm -hmm. But if we have great product in a solid area, then you know you're going to have a lot of inherent demand. So what's that service model after the fact? And what are you doing that makes you different from an experience of, say, renting from me or Tony or, 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 or Sue individually? Um, and we should be able to use our scale and the, the, the investments in technology and processes that should make that experience second to none. And if we do that really well, we should be able to keep somebody with us longer yeah. at a reduced cost. And that's really what we're trying to kind of figure out for the customer, like what are those two or three things that matter the most? Excellent. All right, well, the National Association of Realtors recently named DFW a hidden gem for 2022. And this means, um, according to them, it's a market that has strong underlying housing fundamentals, but where home prices are still undervalued and relatively affordable. So these hidden gems are expected to see stronger price appreciation this year. Can you all speak to the unique characteristics of the DFW market and how it compares to others in which your organizations operate? And let's start with you, Dallas. Well, I, first I say, like, I'm not so sure DFW's hidden. That's what I was thinking. <laughs> I thought that was fascinating, yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I just say, like, it's a phenomenal market. And I'm from Phoenix, which I think is also a phenomenal market. I've lived here now six years. I think one of the things that makes DFW kind of slash Texas so unique, obviously it's an extremely friendly business climate, um, but it, your, geography lo your geographic location is phenomenal. It's one of the reasons we put our headquarters here. Uh, you can attract talent. I mean, you look in this room, there's, there's tons of amazing talent in, in breakfasts and forums like this all over the, all over the, the Metroplex. Uh, you have a massive amount of energy coming into the marketplace in terms of relocation and, and new corporations. You have a lot of entrepreneurship in terms of, of people that are um, trying to build or make their mark uh, in business here. And so I just think the, you, you, it has all the favorable fundamentals you want in terms of, of the type of environment you want around your company. 
I think the other part of it that's great is there's no taxes, yeah. which obviously um, speaks very well to, to the climate. So I don't think it's a hidden gem. I think it's one that's like a self-fulfilling prophecy. You guys have done an amazing job here for decades, but I think what people have come to appreciate is how different this marketplace is versus other big cities across the country. And it's one of the things that was certainly attractive about it for us. And I, I love being here. I think it's a great, great place to do business. I don't have a whole lot to add there. I would say the diversified employment base, it just feels like, you know, if one's kind of suffering a little bit, then there's plenty of other options. And I also think the airport, if you do any amount of traveling at all, yeah. trying to get anywhere in Dallas is relatively easy, just direct flight. If you And you don't have that luxury. If you Maybe if you live in Austin, it's, it's a layover. But just, you know, with our company and our amount of travel, that for me, that DFW, isn't hidden either, but it's definitely a gem, I think. Um, very easy airport to navigate, very easy to get anywhere you need to get from here. When I look at our Dallas compared to our other markets, I've been traveling pretty solidly since last March. And when I visit our communities and say, where are, where's the traffic coming from? Where's our, where are our prospects coming from? The number one and the number two answer around the country is always either California or New York. Mm -hmm. So it's people moving for um, lifestyle, mostly less expensive. When I think about Dallas specifically, it's interesting, there are a ton of jobs that are coming to Dallas, but there are different jobs that are coming to Dallas more diverse than, for example, the jobs that are going to Austin mm -hmm. or the jobs that are going to Houston, not so much. You know, what's driving, what's driving uh, population growth in South Florida is very different than what's driving population growth here in Texas. Texas is a very business-friendly state. Our governor has been very active in trying to recruit people from California, New York, Illinois, all those high-cost states. But what makes Dallas unique is, is the jobs are more diverse, and I think that will benefit us from the long run. Austin is a lot of tech jobs, which is great, but that's, um, that is a primary difference and I think will benefit us in the long run. There has been <clears throat> excuse me, plenty of multifamily supply that's delivered in Dallas and will continue to, to deliver in Dallas, but what's unique uh, now is I think jobs are coming to markets where there are employees as opposed to employees following jobs. Oh, right. And so I think, you know, a young, one of the things that Dallas can do better is continue to educate our workforce. Um, and I think that's a real opportunity for us. If we can get a more diverse, educated workforce, it will continue to drive uh, Dallas going forward. So those are some of the differences. Have you seen a um, performance differential in Dallas compared to other markets from an operations standpoint? From a So all of our markets have been uh, really extraordinary in 2021. We saw things, I would say we saw COVID hit, mm -hmm. big drop, saw green shoots starting at the end of 2020, and then really explode again based on demand first quarter of 2022. We've got good visibility because of how a rent roll, uh, you know, you lease today, and that takes 12 months to run through the rent roll. So good visibility about what's happening uh, in 2022 and 2023. We'll see if the peak for us of, of uh, our explosion of growth really happened in the second and third quarter. So July, August, uh, September will be really important this year to see how the tra trajectory goes uh, beyond. But with respect to your specific question, uh, Texas, all of our markets performed very well. Our hottest market, frankly, was South Florida. Um, and so, but the rest of our markets all performed within a couple of percentage points. So not, not a dramatic difference. Okay. Yeah, and I would, I would echo all of that, actually. I, I do, um, and you know, just, it was interesting because I was prepping to be on a, a panel um, in front of a group that Sue is with, and it's like, I don't know, I was looking at, just started looking at lease trade out about, I don't know, nine months ago. And, you know, I'd been on the phone with people and they're like, yeah, lease trade out, renewal trade out still down. And I'm like, well, what if you kind of narrowed the lens a bit and looked just at the last 30 days and you can start to see it. It's not down anymore. It was ticking up. And I'm like, okay, I think something's happening here. So I kind of stopped. I never said, hey, no, at least I said, well, if you, if you tighten, you tighten that up a little bit, the last 30 days, it's showing really positive, like in a dramatic way. And then, man, it just took off. And so we, we try to make as many data div 
data-driven decisions as we can at Graystar, and I will say we've got the analytics to be able to show us real time, okay, that's what's happening, so hit the gas. Now, we were somewhat restricted in different areas or different ownerships, weren't yet ready to get out and push, but it's, it's great to be able to present the data and say this is what's happening, and by the way, your occupancy is mid-90s too, you really didn't have a collection issue um, on kind of class A or B pro um, properties throughout COVID for the most part were anywhere between 95 and 97% collected. So you could push if you wanna push, entirely up to you, but you've got an opportunity here. And I think, like I said this earlier, it's a cycle like I've not seen before. I've never seen this type of rent growth. And so we're trying to you know, to push it where we can. Yeah, beat the market. Um, all right, so um, wanted to just ask you all, what are some of the challenges that are unique to the single-family rental market? Also, um, someone was mentioning to me their thoughts about how home ownership has traditionally been a way for young people to build equity. Are there any concerns about the impact of delayed ownership on that? So why don't we start with you, Dallas, on the challenges that are unique to the single-family rental market? Well, I, I did pick up on one thing Sue said at the beginning, which is, if you walk away from anything today, you have to appreciate like there's four to five million units that just don't exist that we need mm. in in the housing market today um, around the country, and that's putting pressure on cost. Um, I think some of the challenges with single family. Well, let me just add one more thing, then I'll talk a little bit about the geographic challenges. So, okay. the the one thing I would just add is, but you also got to look at like homeownership rates in the country to figure out if we're really imbalanced or not. And today, it's close to like sixty six percent which is kind of where it typically should be. It's just that we just don't have those four or five million units. So um, as you think about what happened in 07, 08, we got up to almost 69% homeownership, and it probably shouldn't be that high in the country. And so then it dropped down to the kind of low 60s, and it's kind of settled kind of mid-60s, like where it should be. So I don't feel like we have a fundamental issue. I think you have Dodd-Frank, which has made underwriting standards better. Uh, on the mortgage side, I think we have a more qualified borrower today. I think the difference today too is that you also have people that have a lot more equity in their homes. So taking a step back, like I think the housing market's actually pretty healthy, um, all things being considered. We have a major supply issue, which has kind of led to this like historic climb in pricing uh, over the last 12 to 24 months, totally amplified by the issues with COVID, supply chain, it screwed everything up. And so you sit here at 66% homeownership rate, and you're trying to figure out like, how do you make heads or tails of what the market is doing? We're seeing the same demand she talked about. I think the challenges, is, challenges are, is that one, getting, we're not gonna solve the supply issues immediately. So how do you use you know, technology and SFR to help you manage? We manage 86,000 different floor plans, different, you know, um, we don't have a lot of build rent communities, like probably less than 10. Uh, in terms of you know parts of neighborhoods where we have meaningful, that'll change. We have a national partnership with Pulte that we announced we're going to build 8,000 homes over the next five years. Oh. But I would say, you know, as you think about the logistics challenge with detached single family, different floor plans, fit and finish standards, um, how do you communicate with a resident that's all over the place? How do you make them feel like they're part of a community? Those are the challenges for SFR. And I think the cool thing is, is you start. It forces you to solve for efficiency. And Sue mentioned it earlier with smart technology and things like that on doorbells and locks. Some of that was naturally coming to the marketplace, but I think SFR companies have figured out how to adopt it. And then it should get cheaper for you know, the person that owns one or two rentals or three rentals. And I think those are the things we gotta solve for in SFR. There's a lot of opportunity around ESG and things that you can do environmentally that, that could help with you know, how you manage a single family home. It doesn't matter if you rent or if you own your home, that you could apply and, and, and also create kind of some upside either on your cost structure or potentially in your business with SFR, but those are kind of a, a few that kind of come to mind. So when it comes to zoning, is this like a new kind of consideration? Yeah, I was oh. just gonna say mine. Okay. Ours are a little bit different. Construction costs obviously are fascinating right now, um, but also uh, P and Z, it's tough because it's such a new product offering. We say new, but it's not, but um, with situations like that where it's more of a master planned um, B2R kind of concept, you, you'll go in front of P&Z and they're like, what is it exactly? So just getting up to speed kind of with the areas where you want to build. We had actually one project in North Richland Hills that we worked on, I'm gonna say nine, 10 months and we just couldn't get it through. 
And so it, that's frustrating, right? Because all the time, the energy, the dollars you spend working on it. But so that's been a challenge. But also, we haven't really touched on this. Um, just retaining team members has been, yeah. it's an interesting time for that. So we've gotten smarter, I think, as we try to look at these technologies that, as Dallas said earlier, just aren't 100% quite there yet. They're, they're catching up. They're better than they've ever been but we're not there. We're trying to get smarter about how to staff these communities, less reliance basically on humans. And we've been going through an exercise of consolidating operations. So highly you know, repetitive functions. So rent collecting or you know, move out statements, things like that that are highly repetitive. We've taken that and we've created these hubs. So you kind of remove that, you know, maybe that assistant manager from the site and you house a group of individuals in a hub but that's all they do all day is collect rent, process move outs. The property actually realizes the savings that kind of help offset some of those rising costs. And your, you know, your dependency at the property level on everybody showing up every day kind of lessens. So we've tried to get really strategic about that. And so we've actually been piloting a number of things throughout COVID just to, just to, just to help with that. Right. I, I would echo labor is the biggest issue yep. today. Uh, and that's not unique to our industry. You see that everywhere you go. It is interestingly creating a good phenomenon, I think, for young adults who are <clears throat> coming out of college for the last several years. It's been hard for young adults to find a job that is uh, you know, high quality, well paying. And so as a result, for the last several years, we have had a historic number of young adults moving home with their parents, living in the garage or living in the second bedroom. And we're seeing a huge uncoupling of that so that's also creating a lot of demand. A lot of the young adults are now moving out and, and moving into rental homes. So that's a benefit. And I, you, know, you just think about the generations of kids that have come out. This group today is facing really good circumstances. Those that came out five years ago, probably more challenging. Um, but you know, on the development side, costs, labor, supply chain, huge challenges, I think, um, the thing that I worry about most going forward is what I call a stroke of the pen risk. We have an economy that's, that's bifurcated. We have um, people in the United States that have a lot of wealth and have, have done fine. And we have people that that's not been the circumstance for. And so these rental rate increases, while demand-driven, are going to create real challenges for some of our population. And you know, as home prices go up and as rental rates go up, I think it's easy for uh, government overreach to say we need to solve that problem and to think that the way you do that is by putting caps on rental rates. And frankly, that's the worst thing that you can do to solve the problem. We need to create supply, but if you put caps on uh, these rental rates, it's gonna have the impact of uh, eliminating new supply because you, it's a capital intensive business and right. capital need wants a return. So I, I worry about that. We've, mm. you know, the, Eviction moratoriums, for the most part, have uh, gone away, but it's but it's easy for uh, people to think there's a simple solution. There's not a simple solution to these problems. Yeah, an easy fix. Well, I'm proud to say my uh, boomerang child who came back is now out. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so before we move from quest to questions from the audience, I wanted to eat. I wanted to ask each of you to share your thoughts on the short and long-term outlook for your companies and your industry. So Sue, why don't we start with you? So short-term, we have, as I mentioned earlier, we've got good visibility because of how our rent rolls turn. And so, it, you know, it looks, it looks really positive. We know there's always can be a black swan event that you don't anticipate. COVID was a great example of that. Who knows what impact uh, the war in Ukraine will have on all kinds of things, but you know, absent some uh, black swan event, short term looks strong. Medium term, again, until we de deliver more supply, looks like it will be very positive uh, for us. And the great thing about housing is it is a need. So unlike other segments where you can say it's a want, I think our business is it's good for the long term. I think we'll go back to more long term averages. And so to be successful, you have to be an efficient, smart operator and recognize trends as they ebb and flow, but I think there's a great uh, opportunity for the housing industry. I would agree with all of that. I would also add, we're gonna continue to diversify, speaking to 
Um, Sue's earlier point about affordability, we're been doing a ton of work on a rent limited um, line of communities, more conventional uh, versus B2R, SFR, but really kind of scaling back on making construction a little bit less expensive so that we can afford to you know, have the market rent, rent be 20, a 20% discount to what, you know, to, what, um, to what it should be. And so we've been spending a ton of time on there. And I think Alliance, who's a client of ours, has been really successful with that with their pros product. I'm sure some of the people in the audience have toured their product. But, so we're spending a ton of time on that. And I think we're just gonna continue to try to bulletproof our company and, and just, you know, it's, there's risk, inherent risk in all around, around every corner, basically, it feels like these days from class action lawsuits to, um, to things like, you know, employee, employment shortages, those types of things. And so we're just gonna continue to diversify, continue to, you know, diversify the product lines. And we're, you know, our company's expanding. We're in Europe, China, um, Australia. We're, we're continuing to do a lot of that too, just again, to diversify, um, so. Mitigate the risk. Mm-hmm. What about you, Dallas? What's your uh, short and long-term outlook? Uh, I would say um, short to medium term. Next couple of years, housing feels you know pretty safe in terms of a place to park capital or um, a business to get involved with. I think over the long haul, a um, couple of things that were said. Uh, you know, Tony on the entitlement. Real estate's a local issue, always has been, and the loudest noise is going to come from like federal. Um, side of things. And so caught in the middle is going to be the capital that's trying to find ways to deploy and you're going to find pinch points at the local level in terms of getting things through the entitlement phase and the process phase. So I, you know, my, my counsel would be, I think this has amazing long tailwinds to it if we can also solve for the supply constraint issues, which means we have to be pretty vocal with our local leaders, both at the cities and state levels to allow for new housing development, which is fraught with complications. There's always environmental considerations, there's water right consideration, there's all this stuff that goes into the soup. So I think, I think as real estate investors and as developers and people in the room, we have to make sure that we're being loud about the fact that we need more quality housing. Um, and then I also think if I'm in the single family rental space, as bullish as I'm about the short and medium term, I'd be really careful in a rising rate environment in a rising cost of goods sold environment, labor, as we talked about earlier, you know, real estate's always been location driven. The stuff that's worked for me in my career has been when I've anchored in on great locations. Uh, that solves for a lot of missteps in either product or on the customer side. And I, I do fear, I, I, I think it's early innings of this fear, but I think there's a lot of capital coming in this space that is just building build to rent all over the place. And I think a lot of that could end up being busted garden style apartment deals that are too far out. And I think mm-hmm. you should be smart about what you're looking at and why you're investing in, in the parts of the market that you are because in a rising rate environment, your rents will compress, your cap rates will get tighter and um, that can be painful. Yeah. So I think that's kind of the watch out. Good, good to know. All right, well, our experts are ready for your questions. <laughs> um, do we have a microphone? Uh, Travis has a microphone. Who would like to go first? Bueller. <laughs> <laughs> Linda. So the question is about uh, policy changes that can, at the city level, that can support workforce housing. Have you seen uh, great examples of this in uh, markets around the country? So I haven't seen great examples, but I'll give you some of the challenges. Dallas is right, zoning is a local issue, so it's state and local, federal can really only help with carrots and sticks uh, in terms of providing um, 
improvements to the process. But uh, there was a study recently by the National Association of Home Builders, and this is for multifamily, that said the cost of a multifamily home, a new construction, 32% of that cost is driven by government regulation of some form or fashion. So, you know, whether that's adding stoplights or adding sidewalks or building a park, all of which are important, but all of that's getting baked into the cost of a home, which makes it really difficult to make it affordable uh, to, the, to the resident. And so as Tony talked about, there's a lot of us who are trying to figure out how can we uh, develop a less expensive product to deliver a real workforce housing alternative, but we need to work with our local uh, cities to find, I think a public-private partnership will help, and I know we're doing a lot of work on that with TREC. There's a few examples where that's working well in, or, or there are some things that are working, for example, in Massachusetts, there's um, some regulations with respect to uh, zoning, which um, once a city falls under a certain percent of rental housing, the city can no longer st state that it can only be zoned for single family. We need, well, we need changes to zoning, which is so restrictive to, to single family housing if we really want to address those supply issues. Um, there were, there were some things that worked for a while in Seattle. They, they don't look like they're working as well today as they did originally. So it's, it's a challenge. There's no, nothing that I can point to that's a, a panacea for the problem. It's just digging in at the local level. One, one thing I'd add is, is NIMBY is a real issue right now. Not in my backyard for you know, yes. those of us that are a little more um, cool with the acronyms, but I would, and I'm not for the record, but <laughs> I think this NIMBYism piece of kind of community thought and, and sense of community is tricky. It's tricky for developers, it's tricky for investors. Um, you know, we all, and, and we, should, we should be allowed to have a strong opinion about what happens around our, our homes, but I think sometimes we actually shut out opportunity um, and I think at the HOA levels and things like that, um, better clarification on what um, potentially is fair housing compliant versus what isn't. I think we'll start to see some of that weave through the courts over the next five to 10 years because a, a lot of the rules and nuances around who can live where and what and why, a lot of it's candidly not legal in terms of how you can shut people in and out. But also you want to protect value, so I get it. It's just, it'll be interesting to see how this all plays itself out. Yeah, you know? I, I agree with what both Dallas and Sue said. I only have a recent example of a project we're working on in Houston that we're calling a rent-limited project because it, you know, we're working with um, P&Z and we were on the, you know, IC call and they were like, well, should we tell them we're thinking rent limited here or should we kind of keep that to ourselves initially? You know, although all the cities are saying they want more affordable housing and our, our gentleman, Bill Maddox, that runs development for us said, tell them what we are. And it, you know, I'd rather be upfront, put all our cards on the table, we'll figure it out, but I certainly don't want to go in them thinking it's a traditional, you know, conventional deal, market rate deal, and we're gonna, we want to deliver a rent limited deal. So. It, it is, it's, it's interesting because you hear it all the time. Yes, we want that, we need affordable help, but then when it comes down to it, do you, you know? Yeah. So it, it's, it's, I think it's gonna be a big challenge moving forward too. Okay, next. Okay. As a follow up to that, have you guys considered PFC's Public Facility Corporation um, that you partner with the cities and and build, I think you get property tax uh, waived or whatever, and then you have to pay the city something. Um, are you familiar with that, um, where it helps build low-income housing, mm -hmm. or not low, but affordable-income housing? Is that something any of you are, are considering through multifamily? I, I couldn't hear the question. Yeah, I'm sorry, sorry. the first I'm part. I'm hearing your question. Public facility corporations are where you partner with the city, um, and you, I think they're 75-year um, lease or ground leases, and you like build um, you build whatever complex, but you don't have to pay property taxes. Is that something you all have seen people doing or considering? Um, just trying to get your your feel for the yeah. the market on those type. 
So I'm not familiar with public facility corporations, PFCs is I think the acronym you used. There are lots of different, uh, which is also a challenge, right, because there's so many different structures to create tax abatements if you deliver affordable housing of some form or another. And so I think the other question that Linda asked was really about capital stack. I mean, really to do an affordable housing project requires a very, typically requires a very complicated capital stack um, with fitting in pieces and parts to, to make it work. Um, so the short answer is I'm not familiar with PFCs, but very familiar with structures that are similar to that to avoid um, tax, the, the tax costs, which can be hugely beneficial. I mean, for us in Texas, on our operating expenses, 45% of the cost of our operating expenses are our property taxes. So that's, that is a potential way to address some of the challenges. I have two questions about single family. First of all, I've seen a ton of new entrants in that space here recently. What, uh, what, what, is, what impact is competition having? Second question, I've seen a couple of foreign-owned built, uh, built communities just for rental. Is that starting to be more of a thing? Thanks. Uh, more for, foreign-owned uh, ownership projects and also all the new entrants. How's, how are those changing market dynamics and all the new competition? I, I can jump in real quick. Um, I would say the new capital, there's really sophisticated capital coming in. Mm -hmm. um, and I don't mean this in a bad way, but not with, but some of it's with a lot of um, unsophisticated operators that are, need to prove out their model. And so I think time will tell who the great operators are and probably some consolidation opportunities um, as well. I, I would say, oh, when you mean foreign owner, you're saying like non-US, is that what you mean by that? Uh, you know, I don't, I, I'm not as close to that outside of the fact that there are a lot of sovereigns that invest in some of these verticals and in these vehicles that um, own real estate here in the U.S. There's FERPTA regulation, right, that, that mitigates some of that and, and, and we have to be less than 50%. So I haven't seen anything kind of top of radar for me that's been kind of a, well, that's interesting. I, I haven't personally, um, but, but I do think you're right to call out that there's so much capital that wants to come into the space. It is interesting though, and you guys can speak to it better than I, of the uh, single family rental or build to rent market, only 1% of that or 2% at most is institutionally owned. Mm -hmm. So most of the competition is still owned by, by mom and pops. There yeah. certainly is a lot of people that are looking at that business model. But even if everybody that has that dream is able to execute on it, I don't think it will move the needle much with respect to uh, what is owned institutionally versus owned privately, and we're still four to five million housing units short across the United States. That's just such a crazy number. It is a crazy it's number. Crazy. All right, one more question, and then we will uh, wrap things up. Oh, we have, we, oh, okay. <laughs> I can start there. We have some purpose-built, all they are are detached homes, right? That's it. And then we also have what's now a new mixed-use model, which if you, Alon Inwood, as I spoke to earlier, has a townhome section to it, but also single-family homes. And then further, we're expanding that to have maybe a stacked building and then also have some single-family homes and some townhomes. We've been doing that kind of model for a long time with the exception of the single family. So a lot of our projects, especially in Dallas, where we have acreage, you'll see maybe you know 10 garden style buildings and then six townhome buildings. Uh, we did that in Grapevine, we've done that in Lakewood. Um, and so those are really fun projects to work on. I will say that when you do that, the difference in rent typically for the single family piece of that, it's at least 150 dollar premium, if not more, like in the case of Inwood, it's, it's significantly more. Location determines that a bit. As far as amenities, again, we're more focused on the amenities within the home versus, oh, we've got to have this great pool, we've got to have this huge fitness center, you know, we have to have all these different bells and whistles. It's more about just getting the home right and also getting it to where, 
you know, as I think Dallas alluded to earlier, people stay longer. So typically what we're seeing in our single families homes are they're there about three, three years typically. And in a standard conventional, it's, it's shy of that. And so we're trying to make those finishes and fixtures very durable. So hard, you know, solid floor, um, backsplash, very intentional about that because they're living in every square inch of this, right? It's not just like, oh, they basically, you know, sleep there. They're functioning in these homes. And so we're really being intentional about making them durable too from an amenity or fixture standpoint. Okay, great. One last question here. Well, I can start. We just opened a, a modular um, factory in Knox, Pennsylvania, which is not easy to get to. I guess you fly into Philly and it's an hour and a half outside of there. But we've got our prototypes coming off of uh, the conveyor belt as we speak. So um, we have not built a project in the States yet. We've done them in, um, in the UK, but we've not built one here yet. But that's coming. We're really excited about it. My son actually um, wanted a 3D printer for Christmas two years ago, so perhaps he'll be building our first, you know, <laughs> apartment project from a 3D printer, but it's fascinating. But yeah, we're kind of all in on the modular game at this point, so we're excited about that. I couldn't agree with you more. Uh, being a pioneer mm -hmm. in new construction types comes with really high risk, mm -hmm. and so uh, people move into it cautiously. There have been a couple modular uh, factories and attempts, great ideas that <clears throat> haven't been successful. I, I think I think 3D printing ultimately will be uh, something we, that we figure out, but uh, couldn't agree more that, that if we really want to be able to uh, produce a less expensive product, a lot of that's got to come from innovations on the construction side. Yeah. All right, well, Sue, Tony, and Dallas, thank you so much uh, for joining us this morning and sharing your thoughts. Uh, let's give them all a big round of applause. All right, and I think we are welcoming to the stage uh, Rena Parikh of Grant Thornton. Second right? Okay. I guess we're Hey, Christine. Thanks. Uh, I'm not Rena. Rena's stuck on a flight, unfortunately. Okay. I'm her substitute, Tony Banks, uh, with Grant Thornton. Uh, I got to tell you this. How about following a celebrity panel uh, up here and having to speak? So thank you guys so much, uh, Sue, Dallas, and Tony. Uh, you guys are incredible. I think I saw Dallas on 60 Minutes some time ago, but or CNBC, <laughs> one, one of those. But real quick, uh, uh, Grant Thornton is really proud to sponsor uh, the, the Market Matters Breakfast Program. Uh, if you're not familiar with Grant Thornton, uh, we're the sixth largest accounting firm in the world uh, with 60,000 employees across the globe, uh, 10,000 in the U.S. in 57 offices. Uh, we do audit tax and uh, advisory work, and the real estate market is one of our growing markets uh, in the U.S. Uh, we actually have one of our great uh, tax partners, Dave Meyer, is in the audience here today. Um, he has a tax deadline, of course, at April 15th, so I'm surprised he's even here. Uh, so, Dave, thanks for coming. Uh, but thank you all for being here, and thank you for your support of Trek, uh, and thank you very much, Linda, for having us. Appreciate it. Thanks very much. Well, I'm not going to take a lot of your time. Again, thank you to our panel, and it's uh, great to welcome Sue back home. <laughs> Uh, Sue was one of our Trek chairmen. Uh, I don't remember how many years ago, but long time ago. Uh, but uh, uh, it's great to have you back. We really appreciate it. Uh, we are so excited to kick off our Market Matters this this year, and I think it's been a great panel. Lots of information for all of us to think about. We've got a lot of things happening in the organization. Please, please engage. We'd love to have you. Any of our members on our team that are wearing a red uh, name tag. We'll be happy to engage you in anything you'd like to be a part of in terms of our public policy efforts, our leadership development, as well as our community investment, which is really, really important to us. Uh, as I mentioned, the policy is a big thing. Um, I also want to draw your attention. We have a website called Track Jobs. So if you are looking for people, 
or you are looking for your next opportunity, please check out trackjobs.com. We'd love to have you there. And we also will be uh, unveiling a new website in the coming weeks for the Real Estate Council, so we hope you'll come back and visit that because I think you'll find it to be a lot more easy to navigate. We're excited about that as well. So upcoming programs, we'll be having another program in the next few months. We'll keep you informed on that. And uh, Fight Night, the end of September, and Young Guns will be having their casino night coming up as well. So there's lots of places to show up and meet people and get engaged, and we look forward to seeing you again this year. And thanks again for a great day, great start of our day. Appreciate it. Thanks. That's all for today's show. I'd like to again thank our moderator, Christine Perez, and our panelists, Sue Ansel, Tony Eubanks, and Dallas Tanner, for being a part of our Rental Housing Summit. I'd also like to recognize our sponsors, Grant Thornton and DCEO, for their support of our Market Matters program series. Remember to subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts and follow us on social media for the latest Trek news and updates. We've linked to each of our handles in the episode description. Until next time, I'm Bill San Antonio. Thanks for listening.